Good morning, everybody. Hi. Hey. Oh, it's always amazing when you turn around or you come up here and you turn around and there's loads of people in the room that you haven't, <laughs> you haven't realised they were there. It's lovely to see you all and lovely to see you at home too. Um, we're in the middle of a series uh, leading up to Easter called Cruciformed. And it's all about how the cross of Jesus Christ shapes us as disciples of Jesus Christ. And today, for the first time, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, the cross is going to come into really sharp focus for Jesus, but also for us. So if you've got a Bible and you want to be looking at the passage as we go through it, uh, we're in Mark 8 from verse 27 today, uh, so you might want to turn to it ready. Uh, we'll be looking a little bit before and a little bit after it, but that's our main passage. And today what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to take from this passage of scripture three paradoxical truths which lead to one defining choice. I will explain. But just for a little bit of fun, let's get our brains working and, and let's have a little look at what a paradox actually is. Has anybody read Krish Kandaya's book, Paradoxology? So, oh, over there, well, there's one taker. Very good book if anybody's interested and wants to see some of the, the ways in which uh, the Christian message has got so much written, richness and is not a simple, flat message. But anyway, um, so from time to time, you might hear people posing questions or making statements which are not actually true paradoxes. We'll come on to those in a minute. But there are some things called logical paradoxes. Here's an example of a logical paradox. It's the simplest form of a logical paradox you can get. Uh, this statement is false. Think about it for a minute. <laughs> if this statement is false, that means it's this statement is true, but this statement is false. It doesn't actually make sense. A logical paradox is um, so self-contradictory that you can't actually say whether you think it is true or false. Uh, when I used to teach ethics to sixth form students, occasionally an, a student who'd read something on the internet would, would come and throw something at me um, as if it would disprove the evidence of the existence of God. And, they, and the statement was this. It's a common philosophical question. If God creates a stone too heavy for him to move, how can he still be God? Sounds very clever, doesn't it? So if God creates a stone that is so big, so heavy, he can't move it, then he can't possibly be God because God's supposed to be able to do everything. Okay. That's, the, that's the way this silly argument goes. It's actually a logical paradox um, because it is true that God can do anything and it's also true that God could not create a stone too heavy for him to move, uh, not because... He's not God and can't do anything, but because the question itself is logically meaningless. God can do anything, so it would be impossible for him to create a, too, a stone too heavy for him to move. Now, you might at this point have lost the will to live. <laughs> Some people, I'm reading the room here, and I'm, all I'm getting is a lot of puzzle faces. Don't worry about it. All you need to know is that a logical paradox doesn't make sense, okay? It's not a true paradox. Um, and sometimes you'll see um, things that are called visual paradoxes, like this. 
Things which, at first glance, it looks as if it makes sense. And then you look a little bit closer, and it can't possibly exist in reality. Okay. But those aren't true paradoxes either, because actually they don't make sense. They just look as if they make sense. So let's come to a true paradox. What is a true paradox? A paradox is a statement which at first might seem to be absurd or to contradict itself, but actually it contains a deeper truth. And here are some examples of paradoxes that we've probably all heard. Less is more. You have to be cruel to be kind. Or I can resist anything except temptation. Does anybody know who said that? Oscar Wilde, who unfortunately demonstrated that to be true in his own life. So those statements, you might not agree with them, but they do actually make sense if you look behind the, just the words on the page and you actually think about in what sense they might be true. They seem difficult to grasp, but actually there is a truth there to be found. And in our passage today, Jesus' teaching is paradoxical. At first sight, it doesn't look as if it makes sense. You have to look deeper. You have to actually look with the eyes of faith to actually see the truth behind them. If you've... Um, if you've been watching Francis Chan videos on Right Now Media, uh, then you'll, be know, you'll know that up until now, in the Gospel of Mark, up until chapter 8, Jesus has been demonstrating the coming of the kingdom and his own deity with works of power. He's been healing the sick left, right, and center. He's been casting out demons He's been teaching with unparalleled authority. He's even been exerting control over nature. Every region that he's visited, crowds have been flocking to him, wondering, is he an Old Testament prophet? Come back to life? This is just like the olden days when God spoke and he moved in miraculous power. And there's a feverish excitement. It culminates in Peter's God-given revelation that Jesus is not just a good rabbi, he's not just a great prophet, but he is actually the long-awaited Messiah. God is going to use him to save his people. In verse 29 of chapter 8, it's, um, Jesus asks them, what do you think? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. It's Peter's moment of recognition. And this actually is what Francis Chan calls the pivotal moment of Mark's gospel. Now that his disciples have recognized who he is, he can start challenging all their preconceptions of what kind of a Messiah he is. He can challenge their idea of what God's plans for the world. Their, their ideas are too small. And he will also start teaching about what it really means to a disciple who follows him. So let's read Mark chapter 8. Straight after Peter's declaration that he is the Messiah... 
He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called a crowd to him along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Here comes the paradox. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is truly a screaming handbrake turn. <laughs> it is not what his disciples had expected or what they could understand. You can just imagine them. Jesus, you've got power. We've seen it. We don't think anyone could kill you if you didn't want them to. Uh, you're going to lead us to victory over our enemies. The Messiah doesn't suffer and be rejected. He triumphs. What's come over you? We need you alive and well and heading up our movement. Snap out of it. That's Peter's response. And Jesus has to firmly reject it, along with any temptation that that might present for him to avoid the path God has for him. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So... That brings us to our first paradox. The way to glory is through rejection, humiliation, and suffering. Now, we all love a winner. Uh, we even love a noble loser. But we don't love a humiliated, embarrassing loser, do we? Manchester United leaving, losing 7-0 to Liverpool in the football. That must hurt. England losing 53-10 to France in the rugby. Nul point in the Eurovision Song Contest. Being the hopeless dancer on Strictly. Or the first person voted out on I'm a Celebrity. Or even worse, the person who's so unpopular that they're kept in just so that viewers can enjoy them doing endless bush tucker trials and suffering. <laughs> and we definitely don't love a disappointment. 
That's why we hate politicians who overpromise and underdeliver, isn't it? Jesus was talking about suffering, reje- rejection, and death. That's not the kind of savior we're looking for, is it? <laughs> but Jesus told his disciples that he was not only going to suffer and be killed at the hands of men, he would also be rejected. It wasn't the glorious uprising they wanted to hear about, but it was God's plan. Jesus embraced it. He embraced the deliberate lies that were going to be told about him. He embraced the attempts on his life. He embraced the betrayal, the abandonment, the loneliness, the torture, the whipping up of hatred against him the utter shame of public ridicule, his friends' disappointment in him and his enemies gloating over him, being thought weak and having people say, we thought you were something, but you're actually nothing. And the painful seeping away of his life. All of that. We want strength and success as we define it. But God's concerns are not our concerns. God had determined that the power of death would be defeated by he himself dying. God had determined that the debt of sin would not be collected from human beings, but paid by himself and cancelled. God had determined that rather than demand worship, he would endure rejection. And that rather than demand obedience, he would serve. There was glory. There was triumph over sin and death. There was vindication ahead for Jesus with his resurrection and exaltation to heaven. Jesus refers to himself 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, including in this passage, as the Son of Man. That's the phrase we skip over quite often. It's a term which could just mean a person, an individual, a human being, but Jesus always uses it in relation to his authority, his death, his resurrection, or his return as judge of the world. And even in Jesus' time, the Jews would recognize what somebody was saying if they used that that name significantly. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, um, in Daniel's prophecy, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In referring to himself as the Son of Man, Jesus is saying that he will suffer, but glory awaits. In verse 38, he states that he will come back in his Father's glory with the holy angels to judge the faithfulness of those who claim to follow him. 
And six days after Jesus has been talking to them about his rejection and death, Mark tells us in chapter 9, just after this passage, that Peter, James, and John are taken up a mountainside and given a frankly terrifying glimpse of his real glory. Jesus did not have to suffer. He could have avoided it all. And the thing that God wants us to really grasp is no servant is greater than their master. If Jesus was asked to suffer many things, including rejection, shame, humiliation, and death, then we are to say yes to these things too. Romans 8.17 says that like Christ, we as the children of God will inherit many things if indeed... We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There is no glory without suffering. Are we prepared to suffer what Jesus suffered? In this country, we may find it quite hard to imagine being killed for our faith, even though we know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world face that possibility every day. Things are getting harder. Paul was talking about that last week. I just read about a a Catholic clergyman who was sacked as a chaplain of a hospital because uh, somebody asked him about his stance on marriage and he gave a Christian answer. (laughs) But death? No, that's, that's a long way off yet. But... Jesus didn't just talk about suffering and death. He talked about rejection. And I think, if you're like me anyway, you can all too easily imagine being left out, being made fun of, being rejected, being taken advantage of, being thought a bit extreme, a bit obsessed, a bit, you know, if we talk about our faith too much. Which is why we don't often do it it's so easy to keep quiet and fit in to be nice and not to offend but the gospel is offensive to us human beings because what the gospel says is that God has a claim on my life that I don't deserve to go to heaven that I need forgiveness and rescue from myself that I don't get to decide what happens when I die or how I should live until then. If we proclaim that gospel, Jesus' promise is that like him, we will suffer and we will experience rejection. But the other promise for us is also the same as it was for Jesus. He endured the cross and he scorned its shame, it tells us in Hebrews 12, verse 2, for the joy set before him. And Romans 8, which I quoted earlier, goes on to say that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So the question is, what are we motivated by? Is it present comfort or future glory? Which brings us to our second paradox, that to gain your life, you must lose it. 
After telling the disciples about his own rejection and suffering, Jesus gives a direct message to both disciples and the crowd. That's significant. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. And there's a play of words in these verses. The word psyche that is used here can be translated as either life or soul. It can mean a living, breathing human being, or it can mean the self, one's immortal soul. And what Jesus is saying here is he is bringing a challenge to total commitment to him and the gospel. It's not just for the chosen few, the hand-picked 12. It's not just for super spiritual Christians. (laughs) It's for the crowd, for anyone who is weighing up whether to follow Jesus. He says that if we are determined to pursue the life we want for ourselves, to steer our own course, to go after all the things this world has to offer, we might find ourselves in a position where we are asked to deny him in order to hang on to those things. In situations of persecution, as Mark's readers would have found themselves, people might not want to be identified with Jesus because it might very well cost them everything, even their life. But Jesus says his disciples are to deny themselves and take up their cross. William Lane in his commentary says, Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. The central thought in self-denial is a dissolving of any claim that may be urged by the self, a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to say yes to God. But that goes utterly against the spirit of our age, doesn't it? We have grown up on self-identification, self-determination, self-fulfillment, self-confidence. It is so much a part of us that I, well, I find it difficult to recognize, let alone deal with sometimes. I just thought about this the other day. When I talk to young children or young people in church, I might ask them, oh, so what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do at university? And actually, what I am unwittingly doing, and I should be asking this about myself as well, is I'm encouraging them to steer their own course in life, to seek what they want rather than what God wants. What I should really be asking them and myself is, what does Jesus want you to do with your life when you grow up? Where does Jesus want you to go? Where does Jesus want me to go? What does Jesus want me to do with my life? Like Jesus, I need to be so wholly surrendered to the Father's will that I could look death in the face and say, not my will, but yours. 
We sometimes trivialise Jesus' words and talk about having a cross to bear when we go through some of the normal troubles and trials of life. But Jesus is talking here about being prepared to accept the rejection and suffering which come from following him. He paints a horrific picture, actually, of a death march, the one that he himself would take, carrying his own crossbeam on his back to Golgotha. But he says that if we are prepared to lay down our life, we will actually save it. Our true self, which goes on into eternity and will receive a new glorified body, will be saved if we follow faithfully and are not ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. Death no longer has any power over us. Because the worst anyone can do to us is send us into the presence of Jesus sooner than we might naturally make that transition. That is not just, let's make ourselves feel better because life's so awful. That's not just a pious euphemism of there, there. That is a spiritual reality. And the final paradox is that grace is free, but it's not cheap. In 1930s Germany, Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer criticized a church that abused the notion of grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. What he was saying was that if we receive God's forgiveness as the gift that it is that we can never earn for ourselves from him, but we say, I'm forgiven, so my sins don't count, so I can carry on living as I want, then that is peddling cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer wanted us to understand that grace is costly. He said that costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. Jesus died to forgive sin and to have us root sin out of our lives, to learn obedience and to give everything to follow him. Bonhoeffer was entitled to say what he did because he lived it. You may know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you might not. He was a pastor in Germany as Hitler was rising to power. And from the very beginning, he was a critic of Hitler. He had the chance to minister elsewhere. He, went, he had trips to America. He had trips to London. He returned to Germany each time because he felt God was saying that was the right way to behave. He said, not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. In, in other words, <clears throat> every choice not to speak out against Hitler was a choice to support Hitler. And he said, I have to go back. I need to rebuild the church in Germany. 
after Hitler is defeated. And he actually worked with the resistance. He got people out to safety from Germany. And then he actually cooperated with those people who were plotting to assassinate Hitler. He was arrested when his part in that plot was discovered. He was sent to prison. <clears throat> and he was executed a month before the end of the war in Europe. He gave all he had to follow what Jesus said to him. If you're like me, you might sometimes ask yourself, would I give up everything if Jesus asked me to? It's very difficult to answer that question. But I think we start to answer it with another question. Have I already done what he's asked me to so far? How can I know whether I would really pay the cost of my own life if it was required of me? The answer is another question. Am I already daily giving up my life and denying him myself? The way to take up our cross is to practice saying no to ourselves and yes to Jesus every day. In my workplace, how is Jesus calling me to be faithful to him there? In my parenting, where do I need to give up my own ambitions, fears, desires for my children and for my grandchildren and release them into what God wants for them? My children are all grown up. And my younger son is taking not an easy path. God's called him into ministry. He'll be earning half a salary for the next three years. <clears throat> and he has a family. As a mum, I want to just make everything fine for him. But I have to release him into what God wants for him. If I'm on my sickbed, feeling useless, feeling awful... <laughs> How can I die to myself and be faithful to Jesus? In my retirement, how do I give up the notion that it's now my turn to choose what I do with my life and commit to following where he leads right up to the end? With my neighbours, my family, my friends who don't know Jesus, am I willing to be thought an idiot, a bigot, a weirdo, really uncool, because I will talk about the gospel. It's not about doing what anybody else tells us to do. It's not about doing what I tell you to do. It's all about living for him and practicing the art of dying to self in obedience to him. It's a life and death choice every day. And Jesus gives us that choice. If anyone would follow me, he needs to deny himself. I don't know about you, I have failed many times. <laughs> but what I'm so glad of is how gracious Jesus is. Peter was the one who recognized he was the Messiah. Peter was the one who said, I'll follow you. I'm never going to fall away. Even if everybody else leaves, I'm going to be true to you. And he failed at the first proper test of his courage. 
He was devastated. But Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus came to Peter, disappointed Peter, devastated Peter, who'd gone back to his nets. And he said to Peter again, follow me. If you're really struggling at the moment with what life is throwing at you, just know that if in it you are doing your best to deny yourself and follow Jesus, then he sees that. You are practicing what Jesus taught. If you've failed, if you know that you've copped out too many times that you've tried to fit in too much and you've compromised on following Jesus, then know that he will come to you again and say, follow me. He understands. He sees us. But he wants us to learn what it really means to take the way of the cross. Peter I believe that second time was able to follow because he had learned from his experience. He knew what the cross really meant. He knew what it meant to follow to the point of death. And he was faithful. The world needs disciples like that. Cruciformed disciples. Let's ask God to help us tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Amen.